This, this is Christ the Lord. It's a great song. Thank you, Judy. Take your Bibles and turn with me to two passages tonight. There are going to be two main passages we look at as we look at the Apostles' Creed this evening. Uh, and tonight's message will be as much scripture as it is anything else. But in, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and then uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, we'll start in a few minutes in Matthew. Uh, so mark your finger or put your finger or a piece of paper or something at both those places because those are the two places where we will go this evening as we talk about this phrase in the creed. Now we've been looking at the Apostles' Creed for several weeks now and honestly not moving quite as quickly as I thought we would through it. I thought we would be further along at this point, but that's all right. We don't want to rush it. We want to take it uh, and understand it as best we can. On the screen, you see the words, or at least of the first part of it, and we will look at just the a very first part. I want to read what we've covered thus far, and then the passage that we come to tonight, or the phrases we come to tonight to look at. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, we have looked at that first section there, uh, talking about God, who, who He is, why we believe, what belief is, and all of those things. We talked about His almightiness, what that means. It covers His sovereignty, His omniscience, His om omnipotence, and, and all of the, the omni words that you can place to talk about God. That word almighty covers it. It explains why he is the God not only of, of everyday life, he's the God of salvation, he is the, the sovereign of all over all that he has done or all that he has created. Then we came to see Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, uh, two Sunday nights ago. And we looked just a little bit at what it meant to be Jesus, to be Christ, his given name Jesus, his title Christ, which means Messiah, or anointed one, the one who was sent from God, and he is the only son of God. The, the Nicene Creed adds to that he is the only begotten of God, the only begotten son of God. Now one thing we didn't talk about much in depth two weeks ago, but uh, someone asked me about afterwards, uh, after that sermon, they said, but aren't we also sons and daughters, children of God, who are in Christ Jesus? And, and the answer to that is, Absolutely. But we're not sons and daughters of God in the same sense which Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the begotten Son of God. He is God in the flesh on earth. We are adopted children into His family. He is the rightful Son. He is the heir of all things. He is the one who is legally, if you will, the Son of, the son of God. We have been adopted in by no merit of our own, by no circumstances which we granted that we might find favor with him, but by his grace and by his mercy, we have been adopted into his family. There's a difference between the only begotten of the Father and an adopted son. So while we are children of God and we are a part of his family, we are now joint heirs and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We are there because of the adoption process, not because of a rightful place in the family like Jesus has. That's important that we understand that. And he's our Lord. 
We talked a little bit about what it means to acknowledge him as Lord. He is Lord no matter what we do, no matter what we say. We cannot make him Lord. We cannot establish him as Lord. He is declared Lord by God Almighty. He is declared Lord because of who he is. But we acknowledge him as our Lord. When we come to him in faith, we acknowledge he is our Savior and our Lord. Not Savior now, and maybe sometime in the future we'll decide to make him Lord. That's not, that doesn't work. He, we, we come to him as Savior and Lord. And as, as one writer, I think it was Matthew Henry once said, if he's, not, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And, and we need to remember that. Because we come to him and we declare that we have come to him as our Savior, as our Lord. The two go hand in hand. They're, they're much like the whole concept of repentance and faith. People say, well, which comes first? Well, it's hard to tell because repentance and faith really are the two sides of the same coin. Well, Savior and Lord really are the two sides of the same coin. And we must acknowledge that and we must understand that if we are to walk in obedience with him. So tonight we come to who, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. I believe in Jesus Christ, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. This is perhaps the most skeptic, uh, doctrine that faces the most skepticism in our day than almost any other doctrine, perhaps only on close par with the resurrection. Most people today in, in our culture, in our world, and many people even within the church, when they hear you talking about the virgin birth of Christ, when you talk about him being conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, many people will, if they don't outwardly scoff, they will just kind of inwardly say, right. We've studied biology. We've studied procreation. We understand how a baby is born. We understand how it comes about by the male and the female coming together in an intimate relationship and sperm fertilizing egg and a, 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 a fetus or a zygote coming about in that that, becomes, that is a baby and begins to grow, goes nine months, give or take, but about nine months, and then that baby is born. I mean, we understand medically and physically and biologically what it takes for a baby to be born. And yet the scriptures declare very clearly that while that may be the normal process and while that may be the way that, that babies are born in the 21st century and the 20th century and every century that's ever been, there was one time in history where that biological process was violated. And it was violated miraculously. It was violated by the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary. And, and you know, people can scoff, people can laugh, people can question all they want to. That is a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith, as the Apostles' Creed makes clear. That is a basic doctrine of understanding what the Christian faith is all about. Now, in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel, you have the... the, the uh, examination, if you will, or the declaration of the circumstances that surrounded the virgin birth of Christ. It's amazing. Mark and John do not even talk about it. Now, some people look at that and say, well, see, it was made up. 
Matthew and Luke thought they would come up with something clever and they came up with this virgin birth sort of thing. Mark and John knew nothing about it, said nothing about it, and didn't have anything to do with it. Well, the problem is with John, you have something far deeper and far greater than just understanding the physiological birth of Christ. He goes back in the cosmic past before there was anything and he says in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He talks about the pre-existence of Jesus Christ before there was ever even a world created. And the fact that that, he, that, that, that Jesus, that Son of God, the second person of Godhead, entered into this world in a miraculous way is no problem for John at all. He just doesn't go into the biological details of it. Mark, on the other hand, picks up his description of the earthly ministry of Christ in a total different way. He doesn't deal with any of those early days. He's concerned about what took place from the time he started his earthly ministry at his baptism until his crucifixion and death on the cross. But there's no contradiction. There's just different views. As you read Matthew's account and Luke's account, you find two totally different views, even at that. They don't sound exactly alike. For one reason, Matthew writes from Joseph's viewpoint or from Joseph's perspective. I mean, Matthew is writing to the Jewish people primarily. He's presenting Jesus Christ as the king of the kingdom of God. And he's presenting them to the people that were known as Israelites, Jews in that day. And so his concern was that every, dot be, uh, every I be dotted and every T be crossed in understanding it in a Jewish possession, if you will. Even his genealogy of Christ is the genealogy through Joseph. His focus is on the male head of the family, on Joseph. Now, Joseph was not technically and biologically the father of Jesus Christ, not the father of Jesus. He was his adoptive father. He was his, he was his stepfather, if you will. But he was not, the, he, he was not the, the physical father of Jesus. Yet, because of the Jewish import upon the head of the family, and Joseph being the head of the family, he give, uh, Matthew gives the genealogy as it runs through Joseph. And then when you find down in verse 18, when he talks about the conception and the birth of Jesus, he gives it not from Mary's perspective, but he gives it from Joseph's perspective. What took place as Joseph saw it? Listen to what he says. Now the birth of Jesus Christ is as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, that's a very intimate term there, before they came together in a, in a physical way, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. It was just the nice thing to do. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Same thing the creed says here. It is it, it, the conception, the place of that baby in the womb of Mary is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, the, the Greek name for the Hebrew uh, Joshua, which literally means he will save his people. And so the, the angel here just talking to, to, to Joseph bears it out. 
He will be, he will be called Jesus, named Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And here Matthew quotes Isaiah in Isaiah 7:14. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means translated means God with us. So Matthew goes and takes what is happening in Joseph's life in in being told about the, the pregnancy of Mary, and he shows that it is not just something that Joseph dreamed up, if you will. It's not just some imaginative thing that came to him in, in this dream of an, an angel coming to him, but really it is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Behold, the Lord himself will give you a sign, Isaiah said, and, and behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now that's just a clear application of this circumstance to biblical prophecy. Verse 24, And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. In other words, he took her as his own and he was, he was prepared to raise this child, to be the earthly father of this child, but they did not have intimate relationships until after, after Jesus was born. Now, I realize that there are some, especially the Roman Catholic Church, we'll talk about a little bit tonight, out of necessity, says, well, Mary remained a perpetual virgin, 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 that she, all, she never had relations with Joseph or any other man, that she was a virgin her entire life from the time Jesus was conceived in her until the, or the, really the time she was born, until the time she died. There was this perpetual virginity that went on. But if you look in the New Testament, look in the Gospels, it's evident that Mary had other children. Jesus had half-brothers and sisters, born of the union between Joseph and Mary. Now, some try to answer that by saying, well, those were just the cousins of Jesus. You know, they, were, they weren't really brothers and sisters. They were just cousins or family members of Jesus. But the scripture is quite plain that they were brothers and sisters of Jesus, children of Joseph and Mary. So Matthew gives us Joseph's side or Joseph's viewpoint. Luke gives us Mary's. If you look over there in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, uh, Jesus' birth is foretold there to the Virgin Mary. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering, what kind of salutation this was. I mean, I think that's classic Lukean understatement. She was perplexed. An angel comes to her and says, don't be afraid. Of course, angels always said that. Everywhere you see an angel appear, don't ever forget, they always say, don't be afraid. It's probably because they weren't like the beautiful little women with long flowing hair and long wings that flittered around like, like some sort of a fairy rather than an angel, they were fierce warriors primarily. And so their first word, anytime they appear to a human being, 
is don't fear. Don't be afraid. And that's what he said to Mary. Don't be afraid. For you have found favor with God. You have, the, the Lord is with you. You know, he, you found favor with God. She was perplexed at this and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth also has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, now there's Mary's testimony, if you will. Her eyewitness testimony to what took place when the angel appeared to her and said, you're going to have a child. And she argued just a bit and said, how can this be? I, I can't have a child. I've never known a man. I'm a virgin. And so there's something unique. There's something miraculous. There's something great that is going to come up over you. And it's going to be the power of God. It's going to be the Holy Spirit. And, and he will overshadow you. And the holy child that you bear shall be called the Son of God. Now, most people read that from a secular mindset and they say, well, now that's just poppycock. That's just ridiculous. How can those kind of things happen? And, and I'll admit, even some people within our churches say, well, you know, that's awfully strange. That, that's an unusual thing to happen. I mean, I realize in, in, in some circumstance in the past, some women have tried to claim maybe that there was a virgin birth that was taking place, but never did. Only one time in all of history, in all of world history, was there a woman who had never known a man who came and bore a child because of the power of God. I love, her, I love Mary's answer there in verse 38. Behold the bond slave of the Lord, talking about herself. The word bond slave there is that word doulos. Behold the slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. You know, we look at that and we say, boy, it's great that Mary was so submissive, that Mary was so, so willing. But, I mean, let's face it, an angel appears to you and says, listen, this is what's happening. Are you going to argue with him? Are you going to say, nope, don't want any part of that? No, you're not. The power of the Lord was already working in her life and moving her life, and she just expressed her submission and her desire to be what God has called her to be. Now, the statement in the creed, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, points to the reality of the incarnation. It points to the reality of Christ who was preexistent, as John talks about, becoming flesh 
and dwelling among us. But the, the emphasis is the reality of the incarnation, not the glory of Jesus' mother. It's important to understand. It's not saying in the creed, was conceived the Holy Spirit and born of that great and wonderful, mighty, important, uh, uh, worshipful type person, the Virgin Mary. It's not that at all. And the scripture does not focus on the Virgin Mary. Mary was merely a, 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 an instrument, was merely a conduit, was merely a servant or a slave of Christ, bringing the God child into the world. Now, again, we come to the Roman Catholic doctrine that has taken Mary and has exalted her sadly in several areas. They've, they've developed Mariology, the doctrine of Mary that, that makes her a mediator to some extent. And prayers are offered to Mary rather than directly to God, directly to Jesus Christ. And there's that, that praying that, that she serves as a mediator somehow along with other saints alongside of, of Christ. There's a lot of fear just several years ago by a lot of Protestant theologians and actually I think some Catholic theologians that, that Pope John Paul in his last days had adopted a, a view or a doctrine of Mary that called her a co-redemptrix, uh, meaning that she was a co-redeemer with Christ. That, that yes, you had to have Christ, but you had to believe in Christ, and you also had to believe in Mary. The two of them together brought about true redemption and true salvation. And, and there was a fear that in his last days of his life, he was going to go ex cathedra, speaking from the throne, in papal authority and issue a papal bull that would say Mary now is to be declared and be understood and to be worshipped as a co-redemptrix of Christ. It literally elevating her uh, to, a, to a place of, de of deity alongside Jesus Christ. Thankfully, he did not do that. But there's still fear in many circles that that, that is not far away in, in many cases. So there's Mariology, and that has led some even in these kind of senses to what has been called Mariolatry, like idolatry, Mariolatry, uh, a worship of her, uh, a reverencing of her far beyond what the Scripture does. As a matter of fact, Mary herself, I think in her Magnificat over in the, the verses 46 and following in the same chapter as she's talking to Elizabeth, her relative who is conceived and is about to bear the baby John, that we know as John the Baptist. I, I think as she expressed that in verses 46 and 47, we don't have time to look at all of it tonight, but Mary expressed that she saw herself as nothing more than a sinner saved by grace, just like you and I are. She said, Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. She expressed her need for a Savior just like we have to. She expressed her realization that, that he is her Savior. She is about to bring birth to him into the world, but she is not above him. She is not even equal with him. He is her Savior. And she goes on to say, for he, is, he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. And indeed she is to be able to be the, the, the one who brings the Savior into the world. But she goes on to say, For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. 
and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. And she goes on just to express praise and submission and adoration to God for the gift of Jesus Christ, for the gift that she is about to be the vessel that brings him into the world. What a glorious worship experience Mary has there in those verses. So when the creed says that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, the creed is just acknowledging what Scripture teaches clearly. And in our day, you will find very clearly that those who begin to, to doubt and to deny the virgin birth will quick, quickly run to the end of his life and begin to doubt and deny the resurrection of Christ. And once they begin to question the virgin birth and question the resurrection, they begin questioning his life, his miracles, his teaching, and everything else. And it's almost like a row of dominoes that you've seen where they're all lined up and you take a finger and just knock over the first one. You don't knock them all over. You just knock over the first one. But as that one falls, it knocks the second one over and that one falls and knocks the third and so on and so on and so on until all the dominoes are laid flat. What Satan wants us to do in our day is to doubt the most basic of the doctrines because he knows if he can get us to doubting and even denying the most basic of doctrine, the virgin birth of Christ, he has us right where he wants us ready to deny the rest of it. This is a basic doctrine of the faith to be believed, to be thankful for, and rejoice in because of the great gift that God gave us in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit through the Virgin Mary. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, it's because of that virgin birth that he was qualified to be our Savior. It's because of his coming into the world, a perfect, spotless, sinless person. Deity, but also human. God, but also man. Able to understand our weaknesses, understand our temptations, and go to the cross in our place. because of that virgin birth that we have the supper that we're about to observe tonight, this ordinance of coming to the Lord's table. It's because we come by faith, not by sight. I, I, I never said once tonight in our discussion of this article of the covenant, or of the creed that, that I understand how it happened. I didn't try to give you a contra-biological understanding of it. Because I can't. But I declare it to you to be true. I can't give you a, a full understanding and explanation as to how Jesus on the cross shedding his blood can, can become my substitute and my sacrifice 
and my sin is imputed to him and his righteousness imputed to me. I don't, I can't explain that in its fullest sense. But I know it to be true. Not so much by sight as by faith. And when we come to this table, we come saying, Lord, I trust that your blood shed and your body given in my place has brought about my redemption, my salvation, and my new life. And I come to this table tonight, Lord, thanking you for that gift. I, I come to this table, Lord, thanking you for your work. Not my work. Not my accomplishment. But your work in bringing salvation to me. In making me a child of God. In adopting me into your family. And we come remembering how could we forget? How could we become so careless that we would forget the Savior's sacrifice? Now as we come tonight I want you to remember that this is a ordinance to be observed by professing believers in Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I, I just ask you to let the, let the plate and let the, the juice pass by you. Pray and think about what was think about what these represent. His body that was given on the cross, his blood that was shed for our salvation, we might be made right with God. But don't participate. Paul said this is for believers and, and you, you just need to let it pass. But think about what Christ has done and even ask his Holy Spirit to apply that to your life to show you that truth in your own life. If you're here and you're a Christian but you're not a member of Grace Baptist Church, we invite you to participate with us. Because it's not our meal, it's not the church's meal, it's the Lord's Supper. So there's no qualification there that it be just for those who are in this church. But if you know Christ, I invite you to share in this. But I ask you to do it seriously. I ask you to do it examining yourself. I ask you to do it with a spirit of humility and gratitude. As you pray silently, I want to ask the deacons who are going to serve this to come forward now.